0: From the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to The Dark Mind Podcast. friends, and familiars. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have an author who writes short stories about deviant individuals with rotten hearts. Her stories are dark, transgressive, and sometimes humorous, but will always leave you with a potent sense of unease. She's joining me today to talk about her recent short story collection, Impulses of a Necrotic Heart. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Red Lego. welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me on this 15th day of October 2023. I came across your short story collection, Impulses of a Necrotic Heart by way of Bookstagram recommendation, and was really impressed by the broad spectrum of the content of your stories, from dark humor to transgressive horror to mind-breaking grief. You've got it all covered, so I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm excited to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm excited that you found it, just kind of wandering around Bookstagram, so it makes me happy that it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting out there. The word is being spread.
0: Oh, yeah. Treasure Trove. So the uh, title of your collection, Impulses of a Necrotic Heart, is also the title of the first of the 15 stories in the collection. In the author's notes, you mentioned that you were the artist that actually drew the heart on the book cover. You also state that this was the first time the title came to you before the actual story idea. So what was it about this drawing that had the dramatic effect of inspiring the creation of a short story collection?
1: It inspired to a degree the short story, but not necessarily the entire collection. Okay. Okay. I had already known that I wanted to put together a collection because I had enough short stories gathered, different stories that had been published, different stories that I've written and haven't been published yet. So I had enough stories to put together a collection this year. And so it was just kind of a matter of coming up with a title. And I didn't have the title yet. And so I started playing around with some themes that tied the stories together. And a lot of them are... Deeper than a lot of other stories that I've written before, they kind of come more from the heart. <laughs> so that's where that came from. I, I just started sketching out ideas. Yeah, I started sketching out ideas and I sketched out this cover concept of this rotten heart. And from there, I came up with the title. And then the title story also was Impulses of Necrotic Heart. That story I wrote specifically for the collection.
2: Okay.
0: Excellent work, by the way. Just a little side note. (laughs) Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you. I love working with ink and colored pencil. Yeah, it's my favorite.
0: (laughs) So that's literally pen
1: and pencil? Pretty much, yeah. Yep. Okay. It's ink and colored pencil and a little charcoal.
0: Oh, okay. Very nice. Well, your story... Impulses of a necrotic heart presents a twist on the, what I would call the typical concept of generational curses, introducing mm-hmm. the idea that the protagonist, Danny, is haunted by both past and future consequences. So can you explain the inspiration behind this kind of dual threat approach?
1: The inspiration for this story, it's a little tricky to explain because it took so many different turns while I was coming up with it I knew I wanted something generational and something with this idea of a person who's just kind of rotten to the core (laughs) who's got this rotten heart Uh, he keeps having heart attacks and then the person trying to outrun his destiny so to speak Mm -hmm. and I didn't have a full grasp on what this story was going to be immediately it took a long time. I don't know why it took so much time for me to settle on what the story ended up being, but it took me weeks of just kind of contemplating here and there and coming up with another little idea here and there. But eventually it came to me and it kind of tied together that this man was just trying to deny who he really was, but it didn't matter how much he denied who he was. He was kind of just as rotten as his father.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, in your story, Hollowed Hearts, you mentioned in the author's notes that the inspiration for the story came from feelings of guilt that you had experienced in the past when your son wanted to play with you, but you were too exhausted after a long day. And the story involves the boy's obsession with a house across the street and the bats that live within it. And I was wondering, what was the symbolism behind the thematic element of bats in particular?
1: The bats, bats in general kind of have this symbolism of, you know, darkness or death sometimes. Occasionally it can be a symbol of rebirth but for for Wesley, for this little boy, I guess to a degree, it was also that darkness within him. It was that depression that he had because he was a bullied kid. He was neglected, not necessarily intentionally mm-hmm. neglected by his mother, but he wasn't getting the love and the attention he needed. And so he sought it elsewhere. And for the bats for Wesley, the bats were freedom. Freedom from this kind of cave he was living in where he was alone in the dark.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any species of bat that comes out during the day, or are they all nocturnal?
1: I don't know. Hmm. I'm not sure. That's a good question.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know. As far as uh, somebody that's bullied, usually that kind of has the connotation of sports, being at school, you know, on your way home from school, daylight hours, it seems like Mm -hmm. uh, he probably took some refuge in the dark and something associated with existing in the dark. Yeah. Uh, There is a rumor about a man that lived in this house. Is there a clear answer to whether... This man existed still or, you know, I don't want to produce spoilers, but like just for I guess for my own listeners, you'll have to read this. But just for my own edification, is there a clear answer to whether or not this guy actually still exists?
1: There is not. I left it. I left it kind of ambiguous on purpose. In my head, there is. A real
0: answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted and, uh, to know. Is there one? Okay. So,
1: in, in my head, the guy who lived across the street did not move on to some better place. Okay. He's actually gone, which to me makes his story all that more sad mm-hmm. and terrible. Yeah. But I kind of left it open for that interpretation because maybe I left it open to that interpretation just to leave a little hope for myself too. (laughs) (laughs) I got you. So you had mentioned that I wrote the story kind of from this nugget of an idea of my own kid Mm -hmm. wanting to play a game or something and I didn't have time. And that's where the story started was, well, what happens if you say no too many times? What happens Mm -hmm. if the kid, you keep telling them tomorrow, you keep telling them tomorrow, eventually that's going to take a toll on him. And for Wesley, it does take a toll.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Do you have a lot of stories that begin that way? Just an example of something that happens and then you take it to its extreme? Like, well, what would happen if it wasn't just a simple, well, mom's tired today? What if it was?
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of my stories start that way. They start with this very, very small concept, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something kind of innocuous, something kind of an everyday thing an everyday worry. And then I wonder the what ifs. Mm. What if something terrible happens? (laughs) And so that becomes the idea and it snowballs and becomes a terrible story that I write.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. Well, in your story don't make it weird which is something that i've actually uttered before but it's usually to a male friend that i come up behind and start massaging his shoulders (laughs) he's like dude what are you doing i was like shut up don't make it weird i'm relaxing you Uh, (laughs) you uh you mention in the author's notes that it's based on a real experience you had while playing pickup football games with boys And Mm -hmm. in these games, I believe you said, just like the protagonist, Hannah, that they would never pass you the ball, I guess, because they assumed that you weren't good enough, which turned out to be far from the truth. And in the story, the young woman, Hannah, is going through puberty and at that time develops breasts, which further accentuates her femininity. But unfortunately, this also leads to an incident where she gets groped. And I'm not going to go into the response to that. <laughs> I'll leave that to the uh, to the reader <laughs> to enjoy. But uh, if it's not too personal, was this also something you had to deal with in real life? And do you think in real life, when boys don't want to play with girls that are able-bodied, like, I mean, there are plenty of young women that could kick my ass. (laughs) Do you think it's possible that they're afraid of the reaction they would have if they made vigorous bodily contact with a woman?
1: I'm sure that is probably usually the case. Like they For would go full on eight man, like, oh they, my God. They, oh, no, 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 I think, well, I think they're just worried. So in my case, the incident that happened to me, that happened to Hannah, she gets the wind knocked out of her while she's playing football. And so they don't want to play with her the rest of the game. That actually happened to me. I was about 14 and I was playing with the boys and some of the boys didn't know me mm-hmm. and, you know, they weren't throwing me the ball. And we were playing tackle football. We always played tackle and I got tackled. and. I hit just right and got the wind knocked out of me. Mm -hmm. And then they danced around me like I was a porcelain doll for the rest of the game. (laughs) And and that might've been the last game I played with them or at all. I don't know if I played much with the boys after that. So I was a teenager in the nineties. And so I was going through puberty in the early nineties. And so things have changed. Things are changing. Mm -hmm. I think girls, are a little more accepted by the boys in sports groups and stuff nowadays, depending on where they are. But for me, it was always, I had to prove myself every time. You know, I'd go play with my brother when I was 12 and he'd bring me to play basketball. And every single time, if they didn't know me, I would approve prove myself. They wouldn't throw me the ball, but I would notice other boys who they didn't know, they would stop in and they'd just throw the ball to the boy immediately because he was a guy, I assumed. So it was definitely an experience, experiences that I've had as a preteen girl that I turned into this terrible, terrible story. (laughs) 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 And with Hannah, in Hannah's case, she got some revenge (laughs) for it all.
0: But like, do you think that any of those boys, it wasn't so much that they were worried about harming the girl as it was they're
1: oh yeah they're they're a
0: teenager (laughs) their hormones are raging like if I wrap myself around this woman I'm just gonna get (laughs) it's gonna be weird I'm gonna (laughs) I don't know it's
1: quite possible (laughs) it's quite possible and thinking back now I mean some of those boys who like didn't want to tackle me they might have just not wanted to hurt me too you know because they were probably raised to you know not harm a girl, not hit a girl.
0: Yeah, when you put it in the context of the 90s. Yeah, yeah, you never
1: know. I think it's probably a mixture, depending on the boy who was playing. I'm not angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it was. Yeah. And I had fun time writing a story, a little revenge story about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in your story, The Glass Labyrinth, the basis is once again a personal experience You walking down an abandoned boardwalk during the winter and encountering a real glass maze. And I can't quite remember, where are you located again?
1: I'm in Virginia Beach.
0: Virginia Beach. So I don't know how the weather fares between there and Texas. What is it like in the winter?
1: It gets cold. It's not freezing. Occasionally we get snow, maybe once a year if that will get couple inches of snow but not usually it's chilly it drops down into 30s sometimes (laughs) oh okay yeah see I don't yeah
0: I mean unless it's the winter storm winter's not really a season where anything really shuts down so Mm -hmm. I can't quite picture what that would feel like to be walking down an abandoned boardwalk that's closed down for a season Mm -hmm. so I was wondering Beyond the visuals, how did the sounds, smells, and even the cold of the winter day influence your experience and inspiration for the story?
1: So we're a tourist town and it does get cold in the winter. And so it's off season here in the winter. Some shops are open. Some of the restaurants and hotels are open, of course. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the little touristy spots, those little cute little locations are just shuttered for the winter. Mm -hmm. And there's just not as many people out. So I tend to go to the boardwalk in the oceanfront, mostly in the winter. I don't go very often in the summer. I hit other beach spots that aren't as touristy. In the winter, it's just relaxing. It's salty. You can take in more. There's not as much noise from people and cars. And, mm-hmm. and so when I wrote the glass labyrinth, it was really short originally. It was only about 900 words and It wasn't working for me. I wasn't a very strong story. And so I had to add things. And I realized what it was missing were those sensory things. I needed to think about that boardwalk and the location and the the salty air and the gulls screaming. And I think it helped.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so... Can you talk about the labyrinth itself? Because I don't think we've got I mean, we probably do. I don't get out much, but <laughs> I don't think I've seen anything here in the Houston area like you explained in there, like a a mirror maze. Glass maze, I mm-hmm. guess.
1: Yeah. So this one is a glass maze. So there are mirror mazes, but this one it's just glass walls. Mm. And each glass wall is kind of there are like lights along the top and along the bottom. And so they almost mirror each other and the lights reflect off the glass and it kind of creates a mirroring effect. So when you're walking through this glass maze, as long as the glass is clean, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell where there's glass and when it's an actual opening. So I've gone through it with my kids and it's really cool little maze. So uh. everything's dark except for the lights around the windows and you just got to find your way through. and. One of the things I wondered was, well, what happens if you can't find your way out?
0: (laughs) I would be putting my fingerprints everywhere, just (laughs) (laughs) marking everything up. Uh, Well, the story Dogwood was really dark. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, if we got into some of the French extremist movies like Seven Days or, you know, Reversible, things that really hit you in the gut are kind of my jam. So that story was obviously really dark. And not only are you dealing with tragic death and grief, but also severe guilt. And it's noticeably darker than many of your other pieces. So mm-hmm. What inspired the divergence from the spectrum you were kind of staying within to just like headfirst into something that you end up apologizing for in the back of the book?
1: <laughs> I think I was holding back most of the time. Most of my writing career so far, I think I've just kind of been. I think I've been holding back. I went to a scares at care event a couple of years ago, and. Some of the panels that I went to, some of the people I went to go see do their readings like Gabino Iglesias and Jonathan Jans and V. Castro were so inspiring. Cynthia Palio too. Mm -hmm. From each one of them, I learned not to hold back. Basically was the lesson that I took away that Mm -hmm. day, that weekend. Um, They did some really, really difficult readings on some subject matter that I didn't know we were you know allowed quotation marks <laughs> to do. Yeah. And it just it was really inspiring to see them read those really dark passages and to know that I could go that dark if I really wanted to. And so I just took the gloves off and I swung hard. Mm-hmm. And it came from a real fear. I mean, everybody who's a parent fears losing their kids. It's like one of the greatest fears. And they tell you to write what you're afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I wrote. I wrote my biggest fear.
0: Yeah, I had Paula Ash on the uh, show, and I was kind of asking her about the uh, time period of this particular story when it was written, was it pre or post having children, and she said after children, and she said that she knows what I'm talking about. There's plenty of people that say, yeah, once I had kids, there's certain things I wouldn't write about. And she says, the way I look at it is, once I had kids, that was a whole different set of circumstances I have to be scared of, more things Mm -hmm. to write about. (laughs) So,
1: I think whatever was holding me back before, I let it go. And I just write as dark as the story needs to be i don't just set out to write the most screwed up thing that i can think of so for this one i actually wrote this story for an invitation to um, cemetery gates media it had this anthology of collections it was a hybrid it was four stories by me and four stories from sarah tantlinger and from Corey Farenkopf and Jesse Ann York. And we each wrote four stories. And so Dogwood was one of the four stories that I wrote for it. And I wanted it to be set in the spring, because I was doing a spring, winter, fall, and summer story. Hmm. And so I had this idea of the Dogwood tree and and the ephemeral beauty of it, how it it's just gone in a moment. You know, we have blooms one moment and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And then I just kinda tied it into that fear of losing a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: As far as before you wrote it, when you were talking about, like, I didn't know we could write about this type of stuff, did you feel like if you went too far, you wouldn't get published? Like, there was nobody that would publish it? Or.
1: Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that was you, my fear. Now you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was a huge fear. Like, nobody's going to read this. Nobody wants to read it. Like, nobody's yeah. going to touch this story if I go too far. Oh, yeah. But uh, apparently, that's not the case. No.
0: No, it was a great story. I guess maybe. Usually when I read a, a short story collection, I'll try and determine which one was my favorite. I don't think I did that this time, but Dogwood would definitely be, if not the favorite, at least in the top three. So, Oh, thank you. Yeah, very good.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorites too.
0: Yeah. Well, your story, Sensory Deprivation, centers on a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And... In your narrative, the killer goes to great lengths to romance his victims, particularly within the context of the story setting. And typically, serial killers are motivated by a need for power. What made you decide to introduce romance into this pursuit of power? And what did you want it to do for the story?
1: I think for this character... I wanted the reader to believe that he felt human, Mm. that he felt like his actions were justifiable. Not that they are justifiable, but that the character believed them to be. And Power, I don't know, for me, he just wanted love. He wanted the intimacy mm. and he was willing to do whatever he needed to do to get to it, which is him exerting his power in a way. It was him having a power trip, but he doesn't see it that way. He saw it as romance, which is sick and twisted. It's supposed to be sick and twisted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, to be honest think about how quote-unquote love and romance gets twisted up into different sick things like Mm -hmm. in this particular case is a serial killer but you know also rape also uh, abuse um you know what's what's the common trope of why did you make me do this to you with abusive husbands and stuff like that like i do this because i love you yeah Yeah, those two can be intertwined in a lot of sick ways. So I know where power falls into that, but how it kind of links the two together. So strange how that works.
1: Mm -hmm. And I don't think the abusers or the serial killers, I wonder at least, I wonder if they feel like it's a power thing. Do they Mm -hmm. need to feel like it's power or do they think it's something else? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. know. Yeah, I can only speak. So I've had an abusive relationship back in my teen years Mm. that lasted for all of my teen years, like six years. (laughs) And, and so I can only speak for myself and for the experience that I had. I don't know what other people have gone through, but yeah, it was definitely a power thing, but I don't think he saw it as a power thing. I think he saw it as, I don't know what he saw it as. (laughs) He certainly disguised it as love.
2: I
0: imagine it was probably based on insecurity mm. and when you're insecure you feel weak so you want power. Yep. I guess. I don't know. What is that armchair quarterback armchair psychologist? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners at home don't listen to anything I say. I'm so full of shit.
2: <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> uh,
0: well, your story blood bogged (laughs) was i mean it was disturbing all the way around due to the base subject matter but you kind of dressed it up not only because of the vision of massive amounts of rotting coagulated blood but also because of the base topic of rape by the force of not necessarily physical he didn't physically overpower her but he had power over her professional life and future. So it was kind of like blackmail, I suppose, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but, you know, still rape the same. It's just a different dynamic. So what emotional state or states were you attempting to convey with the symbolism of continuous bleeding that just, you know, never led to death and, ruined every environment she was in due to the accumulation of it
1: so she obviously there's no scientific explanation why she was just bleeding excessively like this thousands of gallons uh-huh. <laughs> worth of blood um, and it's kind of just one of those bizarre stories where you just have to let it happen <laughs> yeah. but In her mind, she was wronged. She was wronged. She was manipulated sexually on a level that went really deep. And for her, it will never end. The bleeding will never end. The pain will never end until she can come to terms with the fact that it's not her fault that this happened. There are other people that are also responsible for what's happening to her. So while... (laughs) There's no scientific explanation why the bleeding is happening. It's obviously connected to the trauma that she experienced and her being able to relieve herself of the guilt.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I would assume metaphorical. Yeah. <laughs> and, and great ending. Um, not going to reveal it. Listeners oh, at home, you'll have, no. you'll have to. You'll have to uh, check it out. But yeah even fits into the metaphor you know you're talking about the realization that it wasn't her fault and until then she doesn't find a resolution but ultimately there's some retribution as well yeah (laughs) and not even intentional
1: she didn't mean for that to happen
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you At know, the end. Kar- karma's a bitch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is the bloodiest story I've ever written.
0: <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't think I'll ever write a bloodier one.
0: <laughs> yeah. My day job, I'd frequently come across large amounts of coagulated blood, as weird as that may sound, and <laughs> I cannot imagine I mean, it would probably be exactly as you describe it in your book if it was left to just congeal like the mm-hmm. the amount of stuff you know organisms that would uh yeah. <laughs> end up feasting on it, so yeah, you're getting your splatterpunk chops up. you need to write a full on Judith sonnet esque splatterpunk novel <laughs>
1: uh, yeah i'll have to I'll have to try my hand at some splatterpunk mm-hmm. that might be fun. <laughs>
0: Well, your story, Tangerine Sky, delves into themes of guilt, loss, and obsession with making things right. Also, sensory triggers from traumatic events. And the horror genre is vast, encompasses numerous subgenres and themes. What draws you to the more psychological and emotional facets of horror? And I know I'm anecdotally basing it on this one particular collection. It may be very broad, so uh, let me know if my narrow view is uh, incorrect.
1: No, no, I think you've got it. I think even monster stories and supernatural stories, ghost stories, everything, I think ultimately the really good ones come down to psychological horror in some way or another because the real fears are what we fear we're going to lose whether that be we're going to lose our life or lose a loved one or lose some sense of ourselves, psychological horror, I think it's just easier to identify with because we've all experienced psychological horror to some degree or another.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a book called Nightmare Fuel. I forget the subheading is the psychology of horror film, I think, hmm. and. She gets down to what's actually going on in the brain when you watch a jump scare or what's being set up in your brain as the scenes being set up for a jump scare and the different areas that are activated and talking about how a lot of people will think that horror film is like lowbrow. Like it's kind of a, just a dumb pursuit or something like that. Not realizing how much talent it takes to actually do it. Well, Mm-hmm. and came to mind as you were talking about how just even something you wouldn't think was inherently psychological, like a creature feature or something like that, is inherently psychological.
1: <laughs> Nightmare Fuel. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Nightmare Fuel. I
0: forget her name. She's a young woman, actually, Canadian, I believe, research scientist.
1: It's not Mary Roach, is it? no i don't
0: No, that that Someone doesn't else. sound familiar okay i've got the book it's just out of reach after we're done recording i'll see if i can grab it okay but uh your story here for you is about a woman who is a mother but finds that her personal identity is slowly dissolving into her identity as a mother and this Really struck me because it reminded me of a conversation that I had with a colleague that had been married for about 35 years at the time. And it's in the context of the identity of like husband and wife or spouses. So not quite the same but close his advice to me was that regardless of what your children have going on you still have to have regular date nights with your spouse otherwise you'll lose your identity as husband and wife and when your kids are grown and they leave the house you know you may find yourself living with someone you no longer recognize because you've been so (laughs) into your roles as dad and mom that you forget oh yeah we were in love once we got married you know So you mentioned one of the ways and listeners at home, I'm referring to what she refers to in the author's notes. You mentioned that you were able to retain your identity through art. What are some other recommendations you have for people that might be in the same position? Oh, goodness. (laughs) No pressure.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) So, So becoming a mom that became my identity just being a mom mm-hmm. for so long and it was a struggle to be anything other than mom because that's how other people saw me too I was just a mom yeah. <laughs> for so many years and it was so frustrating because I'm more than that mm-hmm. I'm more than the single thing and so art helped me you know I started doing art again I started having my own thing to do and I think it's important it's just to say to be able to Break away from your kids if you can. And I didn't get to do that until they were a little bit older. But to find things about ourselves that we enjoyed before and go back to those things. Or if you're not into those things anymore, you can't do them anymore. Find something that's yours. Just find something that's just for you and do it just for you. Mm -hmm. For me, that was art because I made art just for me. I wasn't making it for the PTA. I wasn't making it for yeah. <laughs> for anybody yeah. else. I was just creating for the sake of creating because I needed to create. I needed to do something. So if you're a creative person, create. If, I don't know, maybe you like to bake, go bake something that's not for your kids. <laughs> <laughs> good luck keeping I their that hands said, out of it. <laughs> I know, I know. You mentioned the husband and wife and I think that's very true. I think And this is just my personal opinion. I think a lot of marriages fail because we're always changing. We're always becoming different people. I'm not the same person I was 22 years ago when I met my husband. And he's not the same person he was either. I think some people just become so different that they just don't get along anymore because they're just two different people now. So that's just an interesting thing that you said about the husband and wife who don't recognize each other anymore. Uh, It can happen. Yeah. And do you think
0: that's because of what he was talking about, like not maintaining the relationship? Or do you think regardless of that, people can just change so much that it's like two different people are married?
1: Maybe. I don't know heck if I know <laughs> I've been very fortunate that even though we've had personality changes along the way we do keep getting along we don't have we didn't for a long time have very regular date nights we just couldn't do it kids were little we were usually broke mm-hmm. back then we were, <laughs> we're still broke half the time now <laughs> but yeah you just got to make time for each other and talk Even just talking to each other. I see so many relationships where people just don't talk anymore. So they lose track of who they are.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think you should be allowed to engage in hijinks without fear of repercussions just like once a week. Go around and wrap people's (laughs) houses in toilet paper or something. (laughs) That would be fun. Uh Well, your story legacy deals with the supernatural personification of evil being passed down through generations in this story. There are two siblings who come together to bury their mother, who was an extremely evil person. Yet only one of them seems to acknowledge their mother's malevolence. That kind of denial appears to be a common theme in real life families, at least in my anecdotal experience. What do you think motivates family members to deny that a particular relative was a bad person when it's objectively true?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's probably, I don't know, the same reason why we defend our own loved ones. Maybe we just don't see them that way. Like maybe it's a parent or a brother or a sister or a grandparent. And you've just never seen that side of them. You've only seen them through these rose-colored glasses of your childhood. And it's hard to see these people that we look up to, especially when we grow up with them. I think it's difficult to see them for who they are. (laughs) I mean, We do that with our own parents, I think, growing up. Like our parents are just our parents Mm -hmm. and they're great. (laughs) In a lot of cases, not all cases, of course. And then we grow up and we look back and we think, Oh. Well, what what was that all about? Like maybe maybe they weren't as great as I thought they were. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I forget who it was I had on the show. We were talking about one of his uncles and he just had fond memories of this uncle growing up, but at a certain point he never saw his uncle again because his dad forbid it. And once he got to be a particular age, they finally told him why he was cooking meth for the mob. I think.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: So uh, I mean, I guess that you could still be a great uncle. I don't. It's probably a dangerous yeah.
1: dangerous person
0: to be around, but you know, I'm sure they. I'm sure he's still capable of taking him to baseball games.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah. So you know, you just. And that goes with anybody. We never really know people. Mm -hmm. So we can have all kinds of misconceptions about people we are close with. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, your story, 14 Gallons, that would probably be in the top three, is an apocalyptic tale that questions whether when faced with death, one should merely survive or truly live And it reminds me of the admonition memento more, which means be mindful of death. Given that we could die at any moment, what do we choose to do with our present time while we're still alive? And I was curious to know, is that a philosophy you embrace in your day-to-day life? And if so, how do you apply it?
1: I don't know. I don't know. And you would think... (laughs) (laughs) being 44 years old, I'd know what kind of philosophy I live by, but I I don't. So I guess maybe I do to a degree live by that because I try to live day to day. I mean, I always think of the future a little bit, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, at least within the last decade or so, I've learned to just embrace and enjoy life as it is in front of me Mm -hmm. rather than struggling to pursue something that I might never reach uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so like I'm taking chances I'm living my life to the fullest but cautiously also <laughs> So, I don't, I don't know I don't know what my philosophy is to a degree yeah I'd say I know that I don't know <laughs> what the future is going to hold if that makes sense and so I just kind of live day to day the best I can as responsibly as I can
0: <laughs> yeah Well, let me ask you this. I think we can do this without a spoiler. Okay. If you were in the same position as the two women in the story, would you take option A, which was doing nothing, or option B is what they did?
1: Hmm. I would probably do exactly what they did. I think I would hold out as long as I could until it seemed pretty hopeless. Yeah. (laughs) And then I would just live it up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not abnormal to be driven by self-preservation. But yeah, at a certain point, Mm -hmm. you just be like, yeah, this is not living.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that's very much what I would do in that situation is what those two women decided to do. I would first try to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as long as I could. But there comes a point where it is just surviving and there's no point (laughs) it's
0: time to run i was about to say something that was going to induce a spoiler i caught myself (laughs) (laughs) well your final story the haunting of swan lake picks up where the first one left off thus the Mm -hmm. entire collection is kind of framed by the concept of the sins of the father as well as the sins of the son And while the theme of the collection revolves around the impulses of a necrotic heart, given that the collection is enveloped within this particular storyline, is there also a particular meta-narrative? And I hate to use that term because it seems a little pretentious, but like a kind of an overarching theme of a belief system, so to speak
1: not necessarily a belief system. There was this general mood I was going yeah. for. <laughs> I think the generational trauma kind of appears in a lot of the stories. So that's kind of weaved a little bit in throughout a lot of the stories. The opening and closing story is just not being able to escape that darkness within one's own heart. To put it is Simply as I can say it.
0: Well, your story, Consumer Alert, portrays an elderly widow named Meredith who finds solace in the dopamine hits she gets from buying things online. And this got me thinking because I have a very addictive personality. What has it been? Uh, I think eleven years off of the sauce, yeah. but it still manifests in other ways. And the company that begins with a large A—I won't say their name out loud—but we all know who they are.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I use that as a drug. A lot of times I have to catch myself like, do I really need this thing or how do I feel right now? Am I just doing this because I feel shitty, you know? And so the story portrays an elderly widow named Meredith who finds solace in the dopamine hit she gets from buying things online. Do you believe that the addiction to online shopping is about more than just the dopamine rush from the items themselves? Is it possible that the entire process offers multiple points of satisfaction? And if so, what might they be?
1: I do believe that. At least in the case of this character, that was definitely what was going on. So with Meredith, she was still grieving the loss of her husband, who died ages ago. and for her, she was just trying to fill the void, you know, fill the emptiness. Your daughter's out of the house, she lives alone. And she just wanted the happiness of buying things, of having things, of filling her space with anything that could make her happy. Um, so in her case, it was more than just the consuming of products from the internet. It brought her joy. It, it filled her heart, but it didn't fill it for very long.
0: Do you find that you get any kind of satisfaction from buying something online? A little bit. A little bit.
1: I do online shopping and sometimes they order things. I usually just order things I need. I don't order a lot of random stuff, but I I do it frequently enough that I'll get a package and I don't know what's coming (laughs) because I don't remember ordering. I was like, oh, yeah, I did order those gloves. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a little
0: obsessive. What prompted the question is the fact that I find satisfaction in multiple points of ordering something like when the app says order shipped, you know, it's not monstrous, but it's a little like, oh, yeah, the order shipped. And then when you (laughs) see that little progress meter go from shipped to out for delivery, And Mm -hmm. I'll keep on checking it until it's close enough that it brings that map up that says six stops away. And then, boom, (laughs) that's like, yeah, there you go. It's getting close. You know, it's pretty sad.
1: (laughs) See, that's what I need to do because I'll order things and then not look at it again Mm. And forget it's coming.
0: That's probably. Better and they don't not ring the
1: doorbell. <laughs> I know, but they don't ring the doorbell, so I don't know it's sitting out there. So they'll drop it off at eight o'clock at night, and it's out there all night, just sitting there. Because I don't have my note. I should probably set up my notifications. <laughs> 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 That's a me problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, your story infectious glow (laughs) and your particular interest in this got my interest actually your story infectious glow features an elderly man named chuck who is an astronomy enthusiast and i can't remember in the story if he was an amateur or Mm -hmm. he's an amateur not a retired professional
1: yep amateur astronomer okay no
0: he finds himself at the heart of a terrifying event when the star is it pronounced beetlejuice
1: That's a great question. I don't really know. I've heard it pronounced like Betelgeuse. I've heard it pronounced like Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse. And most of the time I hear, I say Betelgeuse. Uh, most of the people i know say
0: beetlejuice <laughs> <laughs> well it's a horror story so we'll say beetlejuice <laughs> beetlejuice yeah <laughs> <laughs> he finds himself at the heart of a terrifying event when the star beetlejuice goes supernova and in the author's note you mention a real instance when beetlejuice dimmed and both you and the amateur astronomy community hoped the star would go into supernova So are you still a passionate amateur with regard to astronomy? And could you describe what the scenario of Betelgeuse going supernova, first of all, what it actually means and what it might look like if it were to actually happen?
1: So I am not an expert. (laughs) I am an amateur. So there's all different levels of amateur astronomers. There are guys who, like, work for NASA and they're still amateur astronomers. (laughs) (laughs) There are people with these huge setups, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in astronomy equipment with their own observatories in their backyards and they're amateurs. I just like looking at the stars. I have a couple okay telescopes. So I'm, I am very amateur. I used to volunteer with our local astronomy club. I was the vice president of the astronomy club for a while and secretary and I was the newsletter editor. I did different roles. So I had my hands in the local community. So, Betelgeuse is a red giant star. It's going to go supernova eventually. And so, when a star goes supernova, it basically burns up all of its fuels. It kind of collapses in on itself and it explodes. Oh. Yeah. Supernova is a huge stellar explosion. And it just casts gas and dust and debris out into the universe. If it happens with Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse is in our galaxy. Mm-hmm. I think it's like 500-ish light years away. So if we see it happen, it'll get really, really bright. It'll get as bright as the full moon, even though it's hundreds of light years away. Um, It won't mean anything for us. It's not going to hurt us. Like nothing is going to happen here on Earth other than the fact that we'll see it.
0: Will it be something continuous or will it just be a flash in the pan? A gigantic flash in the pan, but like...
1: That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. It won't be constant. It'll probably be a really bright light for, I don't know, days, weeks, and then it'll get dimmer and then there would be like a nebula Uh. left over. So I saw a supernova in another galaxy. So back in 2014, I think, I might have that year wrong, in the Cigar Galaxy, I think it was. Mm. I can't remember. I think it was M82. There was a supernova, somebody else discovered it, I didn't discover it. <laughs> and so when you look at a galaxy in a telescope, it's just this fuzzy little blob. It's just this little patch of gray light mm-hmm. and there was a really bright spot in that patch of gray light and that bright spot was supernova. Mm. A star in that galaxy had blown up and it left this really bright spot in the galaxy. And I got to witness that, and it stayed bright for, I think, about a week or two, and then it finally, like, faded.
0: Believe it or not, when I proposed to my fiancé, I did it at the George Observatory in Brazos Bend State Park.
1: Very cool.
0: We got to see a nebula, Orion's belt, looking at different parts of that constellation, some other ones.
1: Mm-hmm. Beetlejuice is in Orion. Oh, <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah, Betelgeuse is the star that makes up Orion's shoulder.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, but when you were talking about viewing, was it a galaxy as a cluster, a small cluster, gray? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it was a galaxy. Yeah. yeah. So whatever you looked at, it probably looked like a little gray smudge. Unless the nebula you saw was probably the Orion nebula, and that one's more than a gray smudge. That one's bright and glorious. There's colors, those blues and greens. Yeah, and it was pretty, pretty nice. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, moving on to less desirable things, your story, Arachnu. Oh, God. I, as well as you, were deeply unsettled, (laughs) just like the character, uh, Jemiah, I believe, Mm -hmm. who despised spiders to the point that he wouldn't even step on them to kill them. And in the author's note you mentioned That's me. no that's you. Yeah, you mentioned that you also <laughs> suffer a severe case of arachnophobia. You described not only a hatred for their appearance but also a disdain for their audacity to just crawl on you, which I never thought about before, but you you are correct. And I was wondering if you had to explain their disposition to someone how would you describe it? Because I was thinking about that. Like, they'll crawl up to you and kind of look at you like emotionless. Like, you can't quite tell if they're like, yeah, what do you want? You know, I'm in here. You going to do something about it? Or what's what's going on in their heads?
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're psychopaths. That's yeah. what's going on. <laughs> now, I'm sure they're just doing their thing. I'm sure spiders are just out there living their life. Not trying to bother anybody, but uh, but they're bothering me. I can't help it. They have
0: a poor sense of boundaries.
1: It's <laughs> they do. <laughs> they have a terrible sense of boundaries. I can't handle it. And I know I hear it all the time. They're not going to hurt you. They're good for the environment. They're good for eating the other bugs. And like I understand this. That's why it's called an irrational fear. I just I can't handle it. <laughs>
0: well, is it completely irrational? Because some of them are poisonous, <laughs> right? That's true. Yeah. I understand they're necessary for the ecosystem, but the ecosystem mm-hmm. is out there. In here is my yes. ecosystem. <laughs> I agree. They're not welcome yeah. here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Jemiah called it, what, breaking and entering?
0: Absolutely. Or, or just like sneaking in through a crack like a cat burglar, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Actually, when... Charles Manson and his family members would sneak in through people's windows. They called it a creepy crawl.
2: Oof! Yeah, that's
0: I didn't know that's that. why naming didn't it didn't after know. spiders. <laughs> Those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, are there any particular themes or motifs you find yourself returning to in your short stories throughout the entirety of your bibliography? I know you have themes and motifs within this particular collection but throughout the entirety is there anything you find yourself returning to
1: i do tend to go back to this parent-child dynamic Mm -hmm. a lot and the toxicity between relationships like close relationships that tends to sneak in quite a bit in my writing (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure why There might be some underlying things. <laughs> Who knows? Do you need to talk? <laughs> no, that's why Oh, right. okay, gotcha. All right. Because we can
0: do the rest of the show as therapy. I might lead you astray, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, I tend to go back to those bad relationships, mm. whether it be like a couple or whether it be parent-child in some way. I tend to go to those quite frequently.
0: Mm. Okay, yeah, I mean... That's a compelling dynamic, I imagine. There's no lack of creative avenues to take that.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, how do you begin conceptualizing a new horror story? Is it a character, a scene, or an emotion? We talked about how you'll take like a concept and just take it to its extreme. Mm -hmm. But does that concept come from a character, from... A scene or, you know, an emotion that strikes you first. What's the uh, precursor, so to speak?
1: It's actually not usually a character. It's usually just some kind of idea that strikes me, some kind of concept of what if. So, with Dogwood, the question that came to mind was what if sheet ghosts or someone who died a certain way? <laughs> and that was just an idea that's not a story it's not even a story idea it's just kind of this concept just kind of this what if question and I just kind of built on that until I had a character and I had a story to go with it so a lot of times it's just some kind of little portion of a story or an idea that I have to create characters for and I try to make the characters fit whatever story idea Gotcha. if that makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Well, are you always writing? And if so, what does your daily or weekly writing routine look like? Do you have any rituals or habits that get you into the creative mindset?
1: I like my space quiet. So I write better when nobody is around me so I can lock myself in a room. and <laughs> <laughs> But I don't really have a ritual, so to speak. I hate routine. I despise routine. Oh. I can't, I can follow a routine for about a week and then I need something new. It just drives me crazy <laughs> having to do the same thing. Uh-huh. I get really bored with routine really easily. So I'm always doing something new. I'm always writing in a new place. I'm writing at different times of the day. I just try to switch it up as much as I can.
0: Okay. Well, are there any specific tools, apps, or techniques you swear by that you use during your uh, writing process?
1: I just like good old fashioned Microsoft Word. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried some other things, I've tried like Scrivener, I've tried different programs, but I like Word. I like a nice blank Word document for sketching out ideas and making those ideas into a story. I tend to use paper, I doodle Mm -hmm. and write down, jot down little ideas until it kind of comes together visually. I know some people think in sentences and they think in words and I don't. I think more abstract. Mm -hmm. A lot of my ideas and stories come to me as like images and emotions and a few keywords here and there and phrases. But for the most part, it's like emotions and flashes of scenes, almost like screenshots. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then from that i kind of unfold it and break it down into words
0: so is that kind of the same thing that happened with the heart drawing or were you doing it for an artistic creation and then it kind of as a side effect inspired this particular story or how did that work i can't remember <laughs>
1: yeah so yeah kind of it's it's <laughs> It's kind of a mess in my head how it happened too, because I'll have these different ideas and I doodle, I draw little pictures and like, I think I drew snakes at one point. I don't know why I drew snakes, but that was part of a cover idea I had and I scrapped it. And so I, I don't even have it right next to me, but it's just pages of random words Mm. that i like and doodles and i was thinking about all the different stories that were probably going to be in the collection i had plenty to fill a collection Mm. but i knew they weren't all going to make it and that's when i thought of the heart and i just started doodling the heart and a rotten heart and i was like oh Mm. this might be a good cover this rotten heart thing so i started sketching that out and then the the title came to me
0: (laughs) well Do you do research into your stories or do you just kind of write what you know?
1: A lot of times I write what I know. If I don't know and I need it in the story, of course, I look things up. I'm about to start writing a piece like part of the story takes place in the 1800s. And there's a lot I don't know about the 1800s. So I've been doing a whole lot of, you know, internet research, (laughs) Googling and a lot of reading of different articles to try to brush up up my late 19th century.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is it going to be a gothic kind of?
1: It is going to be a gothic. It is. Yeah. Uh, I never thought I'd write one, but yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, when you're writing a short story, you know, come to think of it, I don't know that I've ever really gotten in hardcore to the actual writing process of writing a short story Like how many drafts or revisions do you typically go through before you're satisfied?
1: When I first started writing, it was too many, too many to count. Mm -hmm. It was way too many. But I've learned a lot and learned how to, I guess, write smarter and more efficiently Mm -hmm. the first time. And so typically speaking, I probably do about three on a short story. Sometimes more. It depends on the length and how how in-depth it is. There are some short stories where I get it all wrong the first time. Like I have the idea and I write it down and it's just clunky and wrong and I have to revise it three, four, or five times. And then others just come easier mm-hmm. and I get it right almost the first time. Gotcha.
0: <laughs> well, does feedback from readers influence your subsequent stories or your writing process at all? And if so, in what ways?
1: Feedback from beta readers, yeah. Okay. So if it's a beta reader, if I haven't published it yet, I send it to a beta reader almost always, and of course their feedback influences what I do with the story. Okay. I almost always take advice from beta readers, unless it just does not fit with my vision of the story. Mm. As for like reviews, yeah, if I get a bad review, it depends on what it is. I mean, if it's actually constructive feedback about the story then yeah I'll, I'll listen to it and i'll take that into consideration but i can't see like following the advice and taking to heart every comment mm. that comes through about a story if people did that then you probably wouldn't write at all <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah well, which authors or works have uh, influenced you the most when it comes to the horror genre, or I guess just writing in general?
1: Oh, Lord. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot. So I said back, I think it was 2021 or 2022, I went to a Scares That Care, and there were those four authors that I went to go see, do a reading, mm-hmm. and they were incredibly inspiring and that was v castro cynthia palayo gabino iglesias and jonathan jans and i love their works too absolutely amazing stuff one of my favorite authors right now is paul tremblay mm-hmm. i've loved everything he's written i haven't read everything he's written but everything that i've read so far mm-hmm. i absolutely love i love his style i love his endings as ambiguous as they are uh, <laughs> there's a lot of great people working in horror right now
0: yeah Well, kind of circling back to your writing process, is there anything you avoid because you feel it stifles your creativity? I know you can't write around other people, but not so much the actual act of writing, but just in your day-to-day life, if you're in the middle of writing something like, is there something that you just steer clear of because you feel like it really fouls your creative process up?
1: Like subject matter or?
0: Like one person told me they don't drink. Another person told me that they stay away from reading books on writing craft.
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if there's anything. I try to stay off the internet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't drink when I write. I do drink sometimes, but I don't drink when I write. I tried it one time. Yeah. I tried the whole Hemingway thing. <laughs> where, oh, where you were like... Right drunk and sober. Yeah. 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 And I, I was like, I'm going to do it. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was like two o'clock. I'm like, I'm going to have some bourbon. I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to write. Mm. And all I did was sit on the computer tweeting about how I was going to get drunk and write. <laughs> and I never actually wrote anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't drink when I write. I try to stay off the internet. I open my laptop and I just try to stay there and that's my space while I'm writing.
0: Yeah. The internet is notorious for taking your focus away from writing. There's a, I forget what it's called, Brianna Morgan. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She told me about Mm -hmm. it. There's something you can buy. It's a word processor, but you know, there's no internet connection, nothing. All you can do is write a free, write, I think it's called. Oh, Wow. I can't remember, but she's got pictures of it on her social media. But yeah, that's what she uses. It's called a typewriter. (laughs) Yeah, just but a very quiet you know, (laughs) typewriter. Digital typewriter.
1: Huh. No, I didn't know about that one. I do like having the internet, though, because I can look things up if I need to really quickly. So it's hard to break away from it. Mostly I try not to keep the apps open, like the social media apps. I just keep those closed while I write.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as the internet being a distraction, I mean, I guess that is specifically what the distraction is, is social media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if you could just get some sort of parental software applied to where you just can't get on social media at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a great idea. I'll <laughs> lock myself out.
0: Yeah. Give your friend the password and just say, do not give this to me <laughs> until three hours from now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a good idea.
0: Well, horror as a genre has evolved significantly over the years as evidenced by the four authors you referenced earlier how do you see it evolving in the future especially in the short story format
1: I would like to see it continue to diversify in the sense of just new stories by people we haven't heard from yet voices we haven't heard yet I love short stories and I'd love to see the short story form become more popular and more accepted by larger publishers. Wouldn't it be great if you could like pitch a short story collection to, I don't know, Penguin Random House or something.
0: The one mainstream publisher <laughs> uh, after the merge. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> With the rise of so many great indie publishers, small presses, they kind of come and go, but they're gaining traction, they're gaining popularity. And I think with that, we're going to see more short stories and more voices coming out of it.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, with so much content out there, what advice do you have for aspiring writers with regard to developing their unique voice instead of being influenced by what they think their prose should be?
1: Hmm: I had to learn the hard way. I'm still learning. I took so many workshops and online classes, and I joined critique groups, and I listened to everything, and I tried to apply. Everything that I learned. And when I applied everything I learned, <laughs> it really stifled my writing to a point where I had no voice. Everything was just washed and scrubbed clean. Mm-hmm. And I think I lost that sense of voice. So, my advice is to learn everything because there is a lot to learn, but to learn when it works for you and when it doesn't work for you. And I think that just comes with practice.
0: Gotcha. Well, what is the life of Red Lego like outside of writing?
1: (laughs) Uh. Well, (laughs) (laughs) up until recently, I worked mostly part time at a school. I'm not doing that anymore. So now I am full time into writing and running my small press, Death Nell Press. And I'm a mom, so I do mom things in the evening. (laughs) But yeah, all day I work from home. I work on writing. I work on art. I'm starting to do some freelance artwork and commission stuff. so. So I'm an artist and a writer and a publisher.
0: Awesome. Well, Red, it has been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was nice talking to you, too.
0: So, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, Impulse of the Narcotic Heart is out now. It's my short story collection. And in March 2024, I have a novella coming out with Darklit Press, and it's called In Excess of Dark.
0: All right. All right, folks. Well... Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Red, thank you again for joining. me.
1: Right, thank you.
0: And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by the author of a southern gothic saga that is as dark as it is sensual. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.